What do you say following an event of overwhelming violence, an event of mass trauma? What can you say? Well, one very valid response, I think, is to say nothing. It's to simply breathe in the presence of those most affected, those wounded to their very core. Another response, which the scriptures certainly endorse, is that of lament. Lament. So bringing the grief that is too heavy for you to bear into the very throne room of God himself. We see this response all over the Old Testament. In the book of Job, Lamentations, and of course the Psalms. But this morning I'd like to try on a different response. I'd like to focus this morning on the cross. Because it's on the cross, and it's through the cross, that God shows us His response to overwhelming violence and mass trauma. This message will begin then with Mark's account of the crucifixion. In Mark chapter 15, we're going to read that story together and then pull it through the sieve of Scripture, as we've been doing. And my hope is that the biblical narrative, which I think culminates in the cross of Christ, that it will resource us as we discern just how we as Christians should respond to mass trauma. So that is my plan for this morning, but before we go any further, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we know that you are here, and we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would sow your seed into rich soil that you'd grow us, help us learn how to present the heart of Jesus to the world at a time like this, to help us to be your body and to leave this place inspired, encouraged, and equipped. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So this morning, uh, you can remain seated as I read. Um, And since I'll be excerpting the story quite considerably, you may want to just listen, absorbing the words of Mark 15. Uh, But I will be reading roughly from verse 12 to verse 37. Um, And so you can certainly turn there if you'd like to follow along. So the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 12. And Pontius Pilate said to them, What shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? 
And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The chief priests and the scribes also mocked him to one another. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He then uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The nature of life following an event of overwhelming violence is fundamentally changed. That's a quote from Shelley Rambo, whose book Spirit and Trauma we read in our Theology of Trauma group months ago. She goes on to say, In the aftermath of such trauma, death and life are no longer stand in opposition Rather, death haunts life. Suffering remains. Religious language, what we say in the church, often fails to attend to the reality of such trauma. She asks, can theology, can the gospel bear witness to a suffering that remains? End quote. Can the gospel bear witness? Can it speak to the suffering that remains after mass trauma? Well, I, for one, think it can. But in doing so, friends, we must tread very carefully. Well, let me begin by reminding you that the focal image of the Christian faith is an object of violence, a tool of trauma, the cross. Now, this doesn't mean that we glorify violence, that we validate it or affirm it by any means whatsoever. It means that God, in the person of Jesus, has defined himself for us, at least in part, as a victim of violence. A victim of violence. In the four canonical Gospels, we read about the crucifixion of the Son of God. And there were other texts that circulated in early Christianity which focused exclusively on the crucifixion story. The death of Jesus, our hero, our Messiah and Lord, is strangely central to the Christian faith. Christians of all people, then, ought to see and help others see what the gospel has to say about trauma. 
Well, centuries earlier in the writings of Isaiah, we just heard from Isaiah 2 and 11, we read about God's suffering servant. And this servant would bring Israel's renewal. And so with Mark 15 in mind, I'd like to read a rather lengthy passage from Isaiah chapter 53. If you'd like to turn there, I will be excerpting it again. But Isaiah 53. He writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. They made his grave with the wicked, although he'd done no violence. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Entering our violent world... And absorbing that violence in his own body was precisely what God's servant, what God's self, meant to do from the beginning. Thinking back to Exodus, our series in Exodus, and the 400 years of oppression experienced by the Israelites, I'm reminded of God's words to Moses in Exodus 3. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings, he says, and I have come down to deliver them, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. It says, the cry of the people has come to me. I have seen their oppression." Friends, God's children beyond Israel in Egypt face the oppression and violence of sin every day. Every day. And some days it may be more subtle, more tolerable, but at other times, like this past Wednesday, it changes everything. God saw the violence of our sin-swollen world way back in the very beginning. And rather than remaining aloof and promising that if we follow His law, He'll beam us up to heaven, He decided to enter into our violent world Himself. Well, apart from the crucifixion story in Mark, 
and Isaiah's suffering servant, we have another image in the book of Revelation. Now, the author of Revelation is recounting a vision he experienced, similar to the visions experienced by Ezekiel, Daniel, and others. And it's a vision which unveils God's perspective in relation to then-current events. At that time, throughout the Mediterranean world, but especially in Asia Minor, Christians were being persecuted and sometimes put to death, violent death. And so the author, in large part, writes to encourage such Christians to stay the course and hold out hope. His whole vision and revelation is meant to serve that purpose. So after writing seven personalized letters to these churches in Asia Minor, he describes a vision he had of a heavenly throne room in chapters 4 and 5. And I'd like to excerpt the passage, but you are free to follow along in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on it. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. And around the throne on each side were four living creatures. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. For behold, the Lion of Judah has conquered, so he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain. And it went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when it had taken the scroll, the living creatures and elders fell down before the Lamb, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Friends, the idea here isn't that of a strong, fierce lion changing into a frail, bloodied lamb over time in a linear fashion. No. These images are simultaneous. And they're either activated or deactivated based on your spiritual perception at the time. That means that at once, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the strong, victorious Lion of Judah, and, and, the weak, frail Passover lamb. At once, he's the God who conquers all who inflict senseless violence. And at the same time, 
He's the victim of such violence. Moving back to Mark and his account of the crucifixion, after Jesus' death, there comes a period called Holy Saturday. On Friday, as we know, Jesus died. He really died. He experienced overwhelming violence in his own body, and his disciples witnessed the whole thing. On Saturday, then, there was nothing. No stir of a corpse, no empty tomb, no angels, nothing. This past Holy Week, I wrote a post on the church blog about Holy Saturday, and so much of what I have to say this morning relates to that. The same author from before, Shelley Rambo, writes that a rediscovery of Holy Saturday is key to the church's witness, the task of bearing witness to trauma. It's key. On Saturday, friends, Jesus is dead. And if we take seriously his quotation of Psalm 22, the Son of God is forsaken by his Father. Having sunk then into hell, he remains in a state of darkness, despair, and desperation. But over this second chaos, Rambo says, over this second chaos, the Holy Spirit hovers just as it did at creation in the beginning. While the Son may feel separated from the Father on that long Saturday, the Holy Spirit is somehow present, connecting desperate Son and grieving Father. The Spirit on Holy Saturday doesn't triumph, it doesn't conquer, it doesn't vanquish evil. Rather, it stretches itself out as a kind of thread, connecting the realm of death with that of life. The Spirit, then, is that which remains in the face of death, in the face of trauma. It's no wonder, then, that in John's Gospel, we read, After Jesus received the sour wine and said, It is finished, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's what it says. And the word translated give up means to hand over or give to. And friends, by the cross, as Jesus expired, literally, were his mother, the beloved disciple, and even a few others. That means that after the death of Jesus, although the disciples were in some sense alone until Easter Sunday, they weren't fully alone. If we take seriously Christ's exhale at death, that means that these few disciples had the Spirit. A witness in this case to the suffering that remained. 
The Spirit, then, is a spirit of connection, a spirit of witness, breathy witness in the wake of trauma. It's a spirit that quietly lingers, breathes, and loves, and keeps connected the realm of death and life. The morning after the shootings took place, Thursday morning, Of course, schools, businesses were closed, so we all kind of hunkered down like we did during COVID. But Danielle had texted a few friends from the neighborhood nearby who have little kids, and they all gathered in our backyard to play. I was upstairs in my closet, I mean my office, (laughs) one and the same. But I was praying, I was reflecting, I was grieving. And then I stepped out into the light and hearing laughter and chatter, eight little kids running around, I felt presence. I felt presence. That presence, that feeling of connection, life, is healing balm in the wake of trauma. The Holy Spirit is that presence. That presence that connects us to God and to each other in the midst of tragedy. It's a presence that existed in the chaos before creation and in the chaos after crucifixion. And it's a presence, friends, that I believe is palpably present here right now. It's here. As we attempt then to respond to the suffering that remains after the violence in Lewiston, my challenge is that you would not rush forward to Sunday, nor remain stuck on Friday but that you'd linger in the space in between, bearing witness to the spirit that remains. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for not leaving us alone, but for giving us a counselor for giving us your mind, your heart, your spirit. A spirit that enables us to do amazing things for your kingdom, yes, but also a spirit that tethers us to life, tethers us to you, to God the Father, to each other. May we be a community overflowing with that spirit spirit of presence, spirit of resurrection, hope. During this time and at other times when tragedies strike, I pray that people would flock to the church, that it would be a place of hope, a place of love, a place of presence. In Jesus' name, amen.